0: Chapter Two of the Worst Journey in the World Volume One by Apsley Cherry Garrard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Two Making Our Easting Down. PART one. Ten minutes to four, sir. It is an oil-skinned and dripping seaman, and the officer of the watch, or his so-called snotty, as the case may be, wakes sufficiently to ask, What's it like? Two whoops, sir answers the seaman and makes his way out the sleepy man who has been wakened wedges himself more securely into his six foot by two which is all his private room on the ship and collects his thoughts amid the general hubbub of engines screw and the roll of articles which have worked loose to consider how he will best prevent being hurled out of his bunk in climbing down and just where he left his oilskins and sea-boots if as is possible he sleeps in the nursery His task may not be so simple as it may seem, for this cabin, which proclaims on one of the beams that it is designed to accommodate four seamen, will house six scientists, or pseudo-scientists, in addition to a pianola. Since these scientists are the youngest in the expedition, their cabin is named the nursery. Incidentally it forms also the gangway from the wardroom to the engine-room, from which it is divided only by a wooden door which has a bad habit of swinging open and shutting with the roll of the ship and the weight of the oilskins hung upon it and as it does so wave upon wave the clatter of the engines advances and recedes if however it is the officer of the watch he will be in a smaller cabin farther aft which he shares with one other man only and his troubles are simplified owing to the fact that the seams in the deck above have travelled many voyages and have been strained in addition by the boat, davits, and deck-houses built on the poop, a good deal of water from this part of the deck, which is always awash in bad weather, finds its way below, that is, into the upper bunks of our cabins. In order that only a minimum of this may find its way into our blankets, a series of chutes, invented and carefully tended by the occupants of these bunks, are arranged to catch this water as it falls, and carry it over our heads on to the deck of the cabin. Thus it is that when this sleepy officer or scientist clambers down on to the deck, he will, if he is lucky, find the water there instead of leaving it in his bunk. He searches round for his sea-boots, gets into his oilskins, curses if the strings of his sou'wester break as he tries to tie them extra firmly round his neck, and pushes along to the open door into the wardroom. It is still quite dark for the sun does not rise for another hour and a half but the diminished light from the swinging oil-lamp which hangs there shows him a desolate early morning scene which he comes to hate, especially if he is inclined to be sick. As lightly as not, more than one sea has partially found its way down during the night, and a small stream runs over the floor each time the ship rolls. The white oil-cloth has slipped off the table, and various oddments, dirty cocoa-cups, ash-trays, and other litter from the night are rolling about too. The tin cups and plates and crockery in the pantry forehead of the wardroom come together with a sickening crash. The screw keeps up a ceaseless chunk, chonk chonk Chonk-chonk-chonk. Chonk-chonk-chonk. Watching his opportunity, he slides down across the wet linoleum to the starboard side, whence the gangway runs up to the chart-house, and so out onto the deck. Having glanced at the barograph slung up in the chart-room, and using all his strength to force the door out enough to squeeze through, he scrambles out into blackness. The wind is howling through the rigging, the decks are awash, it is hard to say whether it is raining, for the spray cut off by the wind makes rain a somewhat insignificant event. As he makes his way up on to the bridge, not a very lofty climb, he looks to see what sail is set, and judges so far as he can the force of the wind. Campbell, for he is the officer of the morning watch, 4 a.m. to 8 a.m., has a talk with the officer he is relieving Bowers. He is given the course, the last hours reading on the cherub patent log trailing out over the stern, and the experiences of the middle watch of the wind, whether rising or falling or squalling, and its effect on the sails and the ship. If you keep her on a present course she's all right, but if you try and bring her up any more, she begins to shake. Oh, and by the way, Penelope wants to be called at four thirty. Bowers Snotty, who is Oates, probably makes some ribald remarks such as no midshipman should to a full lieutenant, and they both disappear below. Campbell Snotty myself, appears about five minutes afterwards, trying to look as though some important duty and not bed had kept him from making an earlier appearance. Meanwhile, the leading hand musters the watch on deck. And reports them all present how about that cocoa says campbell cocoa is a useful thing in the morning watch and gran who used to be campbell snotty and whose english was not then perfect said he was glad of a change because he did not like being turned into a drumstick he meant a domestic so cocoa is the word and the snotty starts on an adventurous voyage over the deck to the galley which is forward if he is unlucky he gets a sea over him on the way Here he finds the hands of the watch smoking and keeping warm, and he forages round for some hot water, which he gets safely back to the pantry down in the wardroom. Here he mixes the cocoa and collects sufficient clean mugs, if he can find them, spoons, sugar and biscuits to go round. These he carefully chocks off, while he goes and calls Wilson, and gives him his share. For Wilson gets up at 4.30 every morning to sketch the sunrise, work at his scientific paintings, and watch the sea birds flying around the ship then back to the bridge, and woe betide him if he falls on the way, for then it all has to be done over again. Pennell, who sleeps under the chart table on the bridge, is also fed, and inquires anxiously whether there are any stars showing, if there are he is up immediately to get an observation, and then retires below to work it out and to tabulate the endless masses of figures which go to make up the results of his magnetic observations, dip, horizontal force, and total force of the magnetic needle. A squall strikes the ship. Two blasts of the whistle fetches the watch out, and stand by topsail halyards. In in a jib, sends one hand to one halyard, the midshipman of the watch to the other, and the rest on to forecastle and to the jib downhaul. Down comes the jib, and the man standing by the fore topsail halyard, which is on the weather side of the galley, is drenched by the crests of two big seas which come over the rail. But he has little time to worry about things like this. For the wind is increasing, and let go topsail halyards comes through the megaphone from the bridge, and he wants all his wits to let go the halyard from the belaying pins and jump clear of the rope tearing through the block as the topsail yard comes sliding down the mast. Clue up is the next order, and then all hands furl fore and main upper topsails and up we go out onto the yard. Luckily the dawn is just turning the sea grey, and the ratlines begin to show up in relief. It is far harder for the first and middle watches, who have to go aloft in complete darkness. Once on the yard you are flattened against it by the wind. The order to take in sail always fetches Pennell out of his chart-house to come and take a hand. The two sodden sails are safely furled, luckily they are small ones. The men reach the deck to find that the wind has shifted a little farther aft and they are to brace round. This finished it is broad daylight and the men set to work to coil up, preparatory to washing decks. Not that this would seem very necessary. Certainly there is no hose wanted this morning, and a general kind of tidying up and coiling down ropes is more what is done. The two stewards, Hooper, who is to land with the main party, and Neil, who will remain with the ship's party, turn out at six and rouse the afterguards for the pumps, a daily evolution, and soon an unholy din may be heard coming up from the wardroom. "'Rouse and shine! Rouse and shine! Show a leg! Show a leg!' A relic of the old days when seamen took their wives to sea. "'Come on, Mr. Nelson, it's seven o'clock, all hands on the pumps!' From first to last these pumps were a source of much exercise and hearty curses. A wooden ship always leaks a little, but the amount of water taken in by the Terra Nova even in calm weather was extraordinary, and could not be traced until the ship was dry-docked in Littleton, New Zealand, and the forepart was flooded. In the meantime the ship had to be kept as dry as possible, a process which was not facilitated by forty gallons of oil which got loose during the rough weather after leaving South Trinidad, and found its way into the bilges. As we found later, some never-to-be-sufficiently cursed stevedore had left one of the bottom boards only half fitted into its neighbours. In consequence the coal dust and small pieces of coal which was stowed in this hole found their way into the bilges. Forty gallons of oil completed the havoc, and the pumps would gradually get more and more blocked, until it was necessary to send for Davis, the carpenter, to take parts of them to pieces and clear out the oily coal balls which had stopped them. This pumping would sometimes take till nearly eight, and then would always have to be repeated again in the evening, and sometimes every watch had to take a turn. At any rate, it was good for our muscles. The pumps were placed amidships, just abaft the main mast, and ran down a shaft adjoining the after-hatch, which led into the holds, which were generally used for coal and patent fuel. The spout of the pump opened about a foot above the deck, and the plungers were worked by means of two horizontal handles, much as a bucket is wound up on a drum of a cottage well. Unfortunately, this part of the main deck, which is just forward of the break of the poop, is more subject to seas breaking inboard than any other part of the ship, so when the ship was labouring, The task of those on the pump was not an enviable one. During the big gale going south, the water was up to the men's waists as they tried to turn the handles, and the pumps themselves were feet under water. From England to Cape Town, these small handles were a great inconvenience. There was very much pumping to be done, and there were plenty of men to do it, but the handles were not long enough to allow more than four men to each handle. Also they gave no secure purchase when the ship was rolling heavily and when a big roll came there was nothing to do but practically stop pumping and hold on, or you found yourself in the scuppers. At Cape Town a great improvement was made by extending the crank handles right across the decks, the outside end turning in a socket under the rail. Fourteen men could then get a good purchase on the handles, and pumping became a more pleasant exercise and less of a nuisance. Periodically the well was sounded by an iron rod being lowered on the end of a rope, by which the part that came up wet showed the depth of water left in the bilge. When this had been reduced to about a foot in the well, the ship was practically dry, and the afterguard free to bathe and go to breakfast. Meanwhile the hands of the watch had been employed on ropes and sails as the wind made necessary, and, when running under steam as well as sail, hoisting ashes up the two chutes from the ash-pits of the furnaces to the deck whence they went into the ditch. It is eight bells, eight o'clock. And the two stewards are hurrying along the decks, hoping to get the breakfast safely from galley to wardroom. A few naked officers are pouring sea-water over their heads on deck, for we are under sail alone, and there is no steam to work the hose. The watchkeepers and their snotties of the night before are tumbling out of their bunks, and a great noise of conversation is coming from the wardroom, along with some such remarks as, "Give the jam a wind, Marie after you with the coffee, push along the butter a frequent." There are few cobwebs that have not been blown away by breakfast time. Rennick is busy breakfasting, preparatory to relieving Campbell on the bridge. Meanwhile the hourly and four-hourly ship's log is being made up, force of the wind, state of the sea, height of the barometer, and all the details which a log has to carry, including a reading of the distance run, as shown by the patent log-line. Many is the time I have forgotten to take it just at the hour, and have put down what I thought it ought to be, and not what it was. The morning watch is finished. Suddenly there is a yell from somewhere amidships, STEADY! A stranger might have thought there was something wrong, but it is a familiar sound, answered by a STEADY IT IS, SIR, from the man at the wheel, and an anything but respectful ONE, TWO, THREE, STEADY, from everybody having breakfast. It is Pennell who has caused this uproar, and the origin is as follows. Pennell is the navigator and the standard compass, owing to its remoteness from iron in this position, is placed on top of the ice-house. The steersman, however, steers by a binnacle compass placed aft in front of his wheel. But these two compasses, for various reasons, do not read alike at a given moment, while the standard is the truer of the two. At intervals, then, Pennell, or the officer of the watch, orders the steersman to stand by for a steady, and goes up to the standard compass and watches the needle. Suppose the course laid down is south forty degrees east. A liner would steer almost true to this course, unless there was a big wind or sea, but not so the old Terra Nova. Even with a good steersman the needle swings a good many degrees either side of the south forty degrees east, but as it steadies momentarily on the exact course, Pennell shouts his steady. The steersman reads just where the needle is pointing on the compass card before him, say south forty seven east, and knows that this is the course which is to be steered by the binnacle compass. Pennell's yells were so frequent and ear-piercing that he became famous for them, and many times in working on the ropes in rough seas and big winds we have been cheered by this unmusical noise over our heads. We left Simons Bay on Friday, September 2nd, to make our easting down from the Cape of Good Hope to New Zealand, that famous passage in the roaring forties which can give so much discomfort, or worse, to sailing ships on their way. South Africa had been hospitable. The Admiral commanding the station, the Naval Dockyard, and HMS Mutine and HMS Pandora had been more than kind. They had done many repairs and fittings for us, and had sent fatigue parties to do it, thus releasing men for a certain amount of freedom on shore, which was appreciated after some nine weeks at sea. I can remember my first long bath now. Scott, who was up country when we arrived, joined the ship here, and Wilson travelled ahead of us to Melbourne to carry out some expedition work, chiefly dealing with the Australian members who were to join us in New Zealand. One or two of us went out to Winberg, which Oates knew well having been invalided there, in the South African war with a broken leg, the result of a fight against big odds, when, his whole party wounded, he refused to surrender. He told me later how he had thought he would bleed to death, and the man who lay next to him was convinced he had a bullet in the middle of his brain, he could feel it wobbling about there. Just now, his recollections only went so far as to tell of a badly wounded boar, who lay in the next bed to him when he was convalescent, and how the boer insisted on getting up to open the door for him every time he left the ward, much to his own discomfort. Otherwise, the recollections which survive of South Africa are an excellent speech made on the expedition by John Xavier Merriman, and the remark of a seaman who came out to dinner concerning one John the waiter, that he moved about as quick as a piece of sticking-plaster, Leaving Simonstown, at daybreak, we did magnetic work all day, sailing out from False Bay with a biggish swell in the evening. We ran southerly in good weather until Sunday morning, when the swell was logged at eight and the glass was falling fast. By the middle watch it was blowing a full gale, and for some thirty hours we ran under reefed foresail, lower topsails, and occasionally reefed upper topsails, and many of us were sick. Then after two days of comparative calm. We had a most extraordinary gale from the east a thing almost unheard of in these latitudes 38 degrees south to 39 degrees south all that we could do was to put the engines at dead slow and sail northly as close to the wind as possible friday night september 9 it blew force 10 in the night and the morning watch was very lively with the lee rail under water directly after breakfast on saturday september 10th we wore ship and directly afterwards the gale broke and it was raining with a little wind during the day. The morning watch had a merry time on Tuesday, September 13th, when a fresh gale struck them when they were squaring yards. So unexpected was it that the main yards were squared and the fore were still round, but it did not last long and was followed by two splendid days, fine weather with sun, a good fair wind, and the swell astern. The big swell which so often prevails in these latitudes is a most inspiring sight, and must be seen from a comparatively small ship like the Terra Nova for its magnitude to be truly appreciated. As the ship rose on the crest of one great hill of water, the next big ridge was nearly a mile away, with a sloping valley between. At times these seas are rounded in giant slopes as smooth as glass, at others they curl over, leaving a milk-white foam, and their slopes are marbled with a beautiful spumy tracery. Very wonderful are these mottled waves with the following sea at one moment it seems impossible that the great mountain which is overtaking the ship will not overwhelm her at another it appears inevitable that the ship will fall into the space over which she seems to be suspended and crash into the gulf which lies below but the seas are so long that they are neither dangerous nor uncomfortable though the terra nova rolled to an extraordinary extent quite constantly over fifty degrees each way and sometimes fifty five degrees The cooks, however, had a bad time trying to cook for some fifty hands in the little galley on the open deck. Poor Archer's effort to make bread sometimes ended in the scuppers, and the occasional jangle of the ship's bell gave rise to the saying that a moderate roll rings the bell and a big roll brings out the cook. Noon on Sunday, September 18th, found us in latitude 39 degrees 20 minutes south and longitude 66 degrees 9 minutes east. After a very good run for the terra nova of 200 miles in the last twenty-four hours. This made us about two days run from St. Paul, an uninhabited island, formed by the remains of an old volcano, the crater of which, surrounded as it were by a horseshoe of land, forms an almost landlocked harbour. It was hoped to make a landing here for scientific work, but it is a difficult harbour to make. We ran another two hundred miles on Monday, and on Tuesday all preparations were made for the landing, with suitable equipment and we were not a little excited at the opportunity. At 4.30 a.m. the next morning, all hands were turned out to take in sail, preparatory to Rounding St. Paul, which was just visible. The weather was squally but not bad. By 5 a.m., however, it was blowing a moderate gale, and by the time we had taken in all sail we had to give up hopes of a landing. We were thoroughly sick of sails by the time we finally reefed the foresail, and ran before the wind under this and the lower topsails. We passed quite close to the island, and could see into the crater, and the cliffs beyond which rose from it covered with greenish grass. There were no trees, and of birds we only saw those which frequent these seas. We had hoped to find penguins and albatross nesting on the island at this time of the year, and the failure to land was most disappointing. The island is eight hundred and sixty feet high, and for its size precipitous. It extends some two miles in length and one mile in breadth the following day all the afterguard were turned on to shift coal it should be explained that up to this time the bunkers which lay one on the port and the other on the starboard side of the furnaces had been entirely filled as required by two or more officers who volunteered from day to day we took on board 450 tons of crown patent fuel at cardiff in june 1910 this Coal is in the form of bricks and is most handy since it can be thrown by hand from the holds through the bunker doors in the boiler room bulkhead which after a time was left higher than the sinking level of the coal. The coal to be landed was this patent fuel and it was now decided to shift farther aft all the patent fuel which was left and stack it against the boiler room bulkhead, the coal which was originally there having been fed to the furnaces. Thus the dust which was finding its way through the floorboards and choking the pumps could be swept up, and a good stow could be made, preparatory to the final fit-out in New Zealand, while the coal, which was to be taken on board at Littleton, could be loaded through the main hatch. In the meantime the gale which had sprung up six days before, and prevented us landing, had died down. After leaving St Paul we had let the fires out and run under sail alone, and the following two days we ran 119 and 141 miles respectively being practically becalmed at times on the following day, and only running sixty-six miles. By Tuesday night, September 27th, we had finished the coaling, and we celebrated the occasion by a champagne dinner. At the same time we raised steam. Scott was anxious to push on, and so indeed was everybody else, but the wind was not disposed to help us, and headed us a good deal during the next few days, and it was not until October 2nd that we were able to set all plain sail in the morning watch. The absence of westerly winds in a region in which they are usually too strong for comfort was explained by Pennell by a theory that we were travelling in an anti-cyclone, which itself was travelling in front of a cyclone behind us. We were probably moving under steam about the same pace as the disturbance which would average some 150 miles a day. From this may be explained many of the reports of continual bad weather met by sailing ships and steamers in these latitudes. If we had been a sailing ship without auxiliary steam the cyclone would have caught us up, and we should have been travelling with it, and consequently in continual bad weather. On the other hand, a steamer, pure and simple, would have steamed through good and bad alike. But we, with our auxiliary steam, only made much the same headway as the disturbance travelling in our wake, and so remained in the anticyclone. End of Chapter 2 Part 1